0: To episode 1020 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs. What other kind of podcast would Fangraphs have? Actually, I guess that's not true. <laughs> yeah, if, watch yourself. If you've ever heard Carson's, <laughs> um, I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeff. Hi. How are you? Doing well. We are doing an email show, and we have lots of good questions in the hopper. I'm excited about this one, and to see how many we can get through, but. We have a bit of banter before we get to that. First thing, I just saw our guest from last week, Dennis Lynn, just tweeted a video of Carter Cap's throwing a bullpen session, which is great because we haven't seen Carter Cap's in action for a while. But something about his... Crazy, borderline illegal delivery is even more amusing when he's just doing it in a bullpen. (laughs) I'm watching the video right now. There's no hitter to deceive or anything, so like he's not getting any benefit from the the perceived velocity boost or anything. He's just doing this weird thing while you can see like six other pitchers behind him throwing (laughs) like a normal human being. (laughs) He's he's just doing his thing, so. Nice to know, I guess, that Tommy John surgery didn't rob him of his hop.
1: Yeah, it's just such an innocent little hop. And it he looks almost so bored by it in this. I mean, it's <laughs> like a video of someone throwing a bullpen, of course, with, with so many other Padres pitchers. So it doesn't mean anything. There's zero intensity. But mm-hmm. I, I'm, I can't be alone in that I throw. I mean... Matthew Corey like to throw when it's sunny out and you know you see a delivery like this and you want to mimic it like a child Mm -hmm. would mimic any favorite athletes mechanics and it's really hard it's really hard to do this (laughs) or to do what Jordan Walden does and clearly I mean in order for him to do this in the major leagues clearly he has it down to a science but the fact that he can do it Every time, identically every time, and throw like two thirds of his pitches for strikes as he's throwing ninety nine miles per hour, it's I I get that people think. It should be illegal. I get that there are people who think that pitch framing shouldn't count for anything, but this exists and it's unbelievable. And I'm so delighted that hopefully, hopefully we get to see it in the major leagues this year because something was missing last year and it was
0: this, it was this hop. (laughs) Same. Yeah. Not that I want anyone else to start doing this. I kind of want (laughs) only one or two pitchers at a time to be able to do this or else. Everyone would have a 50% strikeout rate, and then it wouldn't be fun. But when one guy's doing it, then I like it a lot, and I like it even more when he's doing it in a bullpen. Not that there's any reason why he wouldn't do the same thing in practice that he does in a game, but it just looks even more ridiculous when he's doing it in this context. And Walden's been hurt for a while, right?
1: He's had shoulder problems, so he can't really... Get a job. I think I read it would be easy for me to confirm, but I'm not gonna do that. I think he's thrown like ten innings <laughs> in the last three years or something. So when do you have that kind of absence? He's probably done as a, a major league pitcher of any significance. So Caps is Caps is our guy. And uh mm-hmm. and he looks like he could close for the Padres. Maybe this makes it easier for a pitcher to get hurt. I don't know, but the whole activity is stupid. You should
0: never do it. So <laughs> he he burns bright <laughs> while he burns. Yeah. Do we have anything to say about Brian Flynn, victim of architecture So gravity. uh, In a sense, this is like
1: the funny spring training injury of Mm -hmm. the year. Because for anyone who is uh, not aware, Brian Flynn, this Brian Flynn of the Kansas City Royals, not of the Montreal Canadiens. This Brian Flynn, who is a 26-year-old lefty, he fell through the roof of his barn. I did not click through for details because I didn't want details to spoil the story. Because a pitcher getting hurt by falling is funny through a roof is funny the roof of a barn (laughs) it's about as funny as you can get it's kind of like when when Jeremy Affelt cut his hand open separating hamburgers I think it was right Uh Uh, which incidentally happened to an NHL goaltender not too long ago Mm -hmm. as well frozen hamburger patties (laughs) need to be better separated (laughs) By wax paper but the problem with making fun of Brian Flynn is he didn't go on the disabled list because he strained an oblique sneezing he went on the disabled list because he has a fracture in his spine so it's less funny now I guess it's a funny arrangement of words that unfortunately has cost a player a a shot at making a major league roster on opening day Brian Flynn is not someone who's going to be like a shoe-in for the roster I think every year so mm-hmm. on a, a personal level for Brian Flynn, the sucks from the perspective of someone who's never going to meet Brian Flynn. Uh, I will laugh, I think, in private. Uh, and, you know, he's he's been treated, so he'll he'll be OK. Uh, yeah. And he'll always be the guy who fell to the roof of a bar. <laughs> right.
0: And we don't know that a trampoline wasn't involved because how did he get on the roof? Yeah, that's
1: right. how powerful of a trampoline thankfully so far Felix Hernandez has been okay but you never know I think it's worth suspecting whenever you have a pitcher go on the disabled list or any player go on the disabled list under somewhat mysterious conditions. It's the details that aren't in the story that you have to wonder about. There, mm-hmm. could, there could be trampolines anywhere. They're pernicious. Yeah.
0: I did click through and Ned Yost said he was working on the roof of the barn, but that was the only detail he offered, which was what I assumed that he wasn't just up there for fun, but <laughs> yeah, what a are, six, seven, 250 pound man on the roof of a barn. I guess barns are not built for Having large people on them. So, yeah, I'm sure this was not a publicity stunt because it would have been a very painful (laughs) one. But if it had been, it worked well because honestly, I couldn't have told you a thing about. Brian Flynn a few days ago Even though he threw 55 innings last year With a 2.6 ERA What reliever didn't do that Basically <laughs> at this point So this makes him stand out from the pack For sure I feel like this could call for one of those The more you know Like NBC <laughs> PSAs
1: Like, yeah. oh, You working on the roof of your barn <laughs> Gotta take care Gotta harness up Watch where you step You could, you could suffer a stable lumbar vertical fra- vertebral fracture Not vertical It might be horizontal
0: do we have anything else? <laughs> yeah, one last bit of banter from me anyway. You made an important observation the other day, which I, is I that did. the Reds 40-man roster page on their website yes. has, I think it was, 16 players listed with weights that were not divisible by five. And this is extremely rare in this day and age. There was a time in baseball history when listed weights were actually Accurate or accurate at the time That they were recorded and You'd see players who were 147 pounds and 163 Pounds and that has Really gone away that is All but extinct and We actually have a a listener who Looked into this last Mm -hmm. year I think it was because Sam And I were talking about Ken Phelps And his baseball reference page lists Him as 209 pounds Which is just extremely rare And we wondered about it and This listener looked into it and he looked into the Laman database and he found that almost no one, I think the the listener's name was Chan L uh, or Jan L, he found that there hadn't been a a player at all recently with this sort of non-divisible by five weight. So you notice that the Reds had a bunch of them suddenly, and I apologize to our audience for talking about the Reds (laughs) in two consecutive episodes. This is not a Reds preview episode even but I had to find out what was going on here, so I emailed the Reds PR people, <laughs> specifically Rob Butcher, who is the vice president of media relations for the Cincinnati Reds, and probably has more important things to do with his time. Well, why would he dignify this, this, this with a question response? <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't dignify it with a long response, <laughs> so he uh, he sent me about six words in response: sentence fragment. I asked him essentially why the Reds seem to differ from every other team in this respect, and his response: because we use players' actual weights. Oh, <laughs>
1: wow!
0: That's That uh, shed a whole lot of light <laughs> on the
1: situation. A little bit of a subtweet, I guess. There of <laughs> bit. everyone else. I was wondering Perhaps. if the I was wondering if we could see sort of a rebound with everything. This is a general. I guess thing to say, but with everything getting more scientific and accurate, I wonder if we're going to, I mean, what's, why not just list the actual weights? They're getting all the actual measurements when pitchers and catchers and everyone report to spring training anyway. Mm-hmm. Why not just list that? What was the reason for not yeah. doing it? And I, I wonder know. if the reds are just going to be, I didn't check to see if it was a bunch of the people who had just reported early for the reds. Cause I don't think any, everyone is in spring training yet. Maybe they are. Uh, Mm -hmm. I haven't paid attention to spring training because I don't care, but (laughs) I wonder if they are just accurate measurements of everyone who's shown up so far and if players are just going to get folded into this on the roster pages. And I guess this is something that we could observe.
0: Uh, if mm-hmm. this holds our attention, which I guess it does based on this <laughs> conversation alone. Yeah. But yeah. It's well, going to right, be because let's see who just else based on chance alone, you would only expect 20 percent of the weights to be divisible by five. Right. And for the Reds, it's it's less than half. Okay. So I'm going obviously. into this line. <laughs> uh,
1: okay. I'm going to look at the Padres roster. I do. You brought up of cap. So I'm going to look at the Padres roster. Uh, right. Let's assume there are 40 players on there. And I'm scrolling uh, Zach Lee two twenty-seven. That's one. Hmm. Still scrolling. <laughs> Got Zach Lee, Zach Lee, Zach Lee, just the one, Zach Lee, <laughs> okay. who uh, the Padres picked up not long ago from a different team. I think it was the Mariners. Let's uh, let's try our luck with one more roster. What's the first one that comes up for me? The A's. Okay, all right. I don't know if they even have a scale, but we'll look at the A's <laughs> roster
0: page. And they have one of those like carnival scales where you have to <laughs> pay to get yourself weighed. <laughs> and the A's have. None.
1: Everyone divisible by five. So, okay, so far... I did a little random
0: sampling of some other teams, and I I didn't look at all of them, but I did not come across... Any others that had this, and this So if it is a, a league-wide policy It doesn't seem to be in place yet I did send another follow-up To Rob Butcher <laughs> Whose time I was very Devoted to wasting And I tried to coax a little more information Out of him to ask him If the Reds have always done it that way And why other teams don't do it that way And he said, I can't speak for other teams We list the players' accurate weight Because, well, that's how much they weigh
1: yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, it's very it stupid not to. And this only came up because, what was it, Brandon Phillips, who the Reds just traded, is on the yes. Braves roster. I noticed he was listed at, I think, 211, which is weird. Mm-hmm. So then I wanted to see if maybe Jose Peraza, who I was thinking about at the same time, had an exact weight as well. And lo and behold, half of the Reds. Also, uh, a little fun fact on the Reds roster that someone tweeted at me. So as you probably know, as many people probably know, the Reds have a reliever who goes by Jumbo Diaz, Diaz, depends mm-hmm. how you want to pronounce it. So I don't know. I don't, I'm going to assume Jumbo is not his actual name, but let me just confirm using the only source I know how. His name is Jose Rafael Rodriguez Diaz, but he goes by Jumbo. Okay. Twitter handle L Jumbo, or maybe Jumbo Diaz. <laughs> uh, he's listed at 278 pounds. That's, uh, Clearly a large, uh large human being. But mm-hmm. the Reds also have uh, have one Sal Romano. Sal Romano stands six foot five, so he's got an inch on Jumbo Diaz, but he's at two seventy. He's at two hundred seventy pounds, and uh and he's also nine years younger, which means that uh maybe Romano's metabolism is going to start to go <laughs> soon. I don't know. He's still quite young, but Sal is a 23-year-old who tips the scales at 270 pounds on a roster that has a player who goes by Jumbo, who's only got eight pounds on him. So (laughs) if Sal gains weight or if Jumbo Diaz loses a fairly negligible amount of weight, do they have to change names? (laughs) Can you be a Jumbo on a roster if you're not the heaviest player on the team? I don't think you can. Also, Rookie Davis, 255, don't sleep on Rookie Davis. Yeah, and does he have to give up Rookie once he isn't one? <laughs> is, is his name actually, I know this is an email show, but I think we're just not going to get to any emails because I also wanted to mention CJ Wilson is a, a former now Major League pitcher. He's in his mid-30s. He made $88 million in his Major League career, plus what I can say would be a negligible 89500 which is extremely exact Uh, Negligible to him Would not be negligible to me Or my landlord But CJ Wilson, $88 million Made in his career So he's probably held on to, I don't know 50% of that, 60% of that Whatever athletes get It's not weird to me that CJ Wilson retired It's not weird to me that he retired to go full time into car racing and sales what's weird to me is that he's chosen to do that in fresno california <laughs> i don't i don't want to co- i don't want this to be like an anti-fresno propaganda podcast but i mean of all the places of all the places to settle in california i could think of maybe three that I would want to inhabit less and I've been over I've been throughout California I used to live in California Fresno is not the worst city in California yeah. maybe it's getting better lots of places <laughs> are getting better I'm sure CJ Wilson bringing that much money into Fresno that's not bad for the community it just I think it says something about him I'm not going to speculate it says something about him that that is where he decided to to settle he is a, he uh, wants a challenge I guess uh <laughs> I mean, it's better now that I think the drought conditions are being released. We should do emails. We should get the emails before we do this for too long, because we've already talked
0: for almost 20 minutes. It's better than Bakersfield. <laughs> All right. <And> Modesto. <laughs> Question from Matt, which is probably inspired by the Alex Reyes Tommy John surgery. I just wrote about that, and I wrote about how Tommy John surgeries spike every year right around this time, which is very depressing because this is when we're all at our most optimistic and idealistic about baseball, and then suddenly exciting pitchers get stolen from us. But Matt says, imagine a surgeon announces they've perfected a procedure that guarantees UCL and other elbow ligament health and strength for life. Let's say it's an outpatient surgery with a two to three week recovery before full training can resume. This surgeon's practice is flooded with MLB and aspiring pitchers every fall. And the scourge of Tommy John is eliminated from baseball forever. My question is, where does the surgeon rank in importance to Major League Baseball of all non-players? I assume they would immediately supplant James Andrews as the top medical professional. But do they become as important as, say, a Marvin Miller or Kennesaw Mountain Landis? Do they achieve a status in the history of the game that forces people to mention them when they talk about people who changed the game to what it became?
1: Well, in terms of the number of players impacted or percentage of players impacted, I guess it would be a a lesser number than players who become free agents. And of course, Tommy John surgery as it is at present would only knock the majority of players out for about a season and a quarter, season and a half. So they're not losing their entire career. So I think you've, you've still got say a Marvin Miller making a bigger impact, but this Mm -hmm. surgeon would become of such importance that he couldn't conceivably do all of the operations. Maybe this is where Dr. James Andrews comes in, learns a new technique. You can teach an old dog a new (laughs) surgery. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, the the team surgeons would probably go to conferences, do whatever surgeons do to get better at, at surgery and pick up on this. And I would think that you could justify putting this surgeon eventually in the Hall of Fame, which would maybe be controversial. I don't remember off the top of my head what they've done with uh, Frank Joby, who is uh, maybe maybe you remember better than I do, but that would be a very important surgeon, and that would... Uh, I I This has been the off-season of, I think, developing a little bit of hope from the cases of Garrett Richards and Seth Maness, that maybe yeah. it will be possible to... You've written about this, and I've written about uh, Richards, mm-hmm. and uh, that maybe there are going to be these less invasive or minimally invasive techniques to help ward off horrible ligament damage. As Alex Reyes shows, there's nothing you can do about a full ligament tear. You can't just take a shot and make that go away. But already we're seeing some progress, but the idea of a surgery that would give you this insanely strong ligament, I'm sure there would be some complications in terms of a, I don't know, I guess the teams would probably fund it, but then you get into the issues of a Like preventative surgery, which Mm -hmm. comes with some drawbacks. But I guess in this hypothetical, everything is perfect and the surgeon is God. And he would be
0: a very important surgeon and also would be God. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't even know how much of a a household name, and I'm not even sure that you pronounce the name right, (laughs) (laughs) Frank. (laughs) Is it Joby? I'm
1: almost certain it's Joby, but like any one of us, we'd read everything, right? We so seldom hear. Uh, Certainly, we so seldom hear from an authoritative person. Yeah, I guess we should settle
0: this. (laughs) Got at least one video from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that says Job. Anyway, I've always said Job in my head. We're not even (laughs) sure for 100%, which speaks to the fact that he is probably not a a household name, even among, I don't know, like, does the casual fan know his name? Oh, no, there's no way. Right? I mean, maybe that's because the surgery that he invented kind of got co-opted name-wise by a better-known pitcher, so that may be working against his name recognition there, but... I think it affects too few pitchers probably to, as you were saying, rise to the level of Marvin Miller, for instance. This would be a a famous person for sure, and if you had some kind of medical wing, then you would definitely put the person in, but I don't think... It would rise any higher than that notoriety-wise unless you could apply the same technique to other injuries and it would be more of an across-the-board preventative thing more so than just this specific injury, which seems like an epidemic but still affects a minority of pitchers. And when it does affect them, the majority of them come back and are still effective. So I think this would probably be like removing the need for Tommy John surgery would be a a smaller step probably than creating Tommy John surgery. Right. I would think. So in that sense, he would probably deserve to be slightly less well known than Frank Job.
1: And I guess the reality is that if you if you perfected the surgery and you did it all the time, it wouldn't take very long before people just kind of forgot about Tommy John surgery and ligament tears and they would forget what it was like to have a pitcher out for twelve to eighteen months. Uh, mm-hmm. so you would lose your appreciation of it real fast. Now, granted, maybe some pitchers would decide, Oh, I'm not going to have the surgery. And then they would get hurt, you know, cause you would still maybe have injuries at lower levels where your high school isn't going to fund you getting surgery. Your parents probably aren't going to pay for it. Your college isn't going to fund you to get the surgery. So this would be something that would happen maybe when you're in a, a professional organization. So you'd still have young people getting hurt and getting the other the bigger surgery but Mm -hmm. uh, most people aren't paying attention to what happens to younger players which granted is one of the problems with younger players right now but major league baseball fans would kind of forget uh what it's like to experience the loss of an alex reyes and
0: so at some point you would just start taking the surgeon for granted yeah all right next question is from michael and it's a response to an email we answered i think in the first email show we did together. He says, enjoyed the discussion about how long Barry Bonds could have kept it up if he hadn't been blackballed or if he'd been able to get a job in baseball. I think an even better one is Randy Johnson. Specifically, if Randy Johnson wanted nothing more than to pitch in the majors for as long as possible, how long could he have gone? My theory is that with his height increasing his effective velocity and the existence of a loogie role, he could have gone until his mid-50s at least. Wouldn't a 55-year-old big unit be better than a 46-year-old Jesse Urasco. What say you?
1: Well, let's see. Randy Johnson right now is 53 and five months. In his last year, that's 2009. That's less long ago than I thought. He was a starter in mm-hmm. 2009. As a starter, he was throwing about 90 miles per hour. I think I could be wrong, but I think he was starting to have some shoulder issues yes. toward the end of his career. Mm-hmm okay so let's say he even takes a year off rehabs does whatever uh super tall he uh he was six foot ten as i think people recall (laughs) and so he's throwing 90 as a
0: starter when he would have been what is that like 46 45 46 yeah he had uh he had a rotator cuff strain that last season was on the 60 day dl and missed 71 days so it was a fairly serious thing that was like one of his first serious injuries but they were I mean he had a lot of back issues so Mm -hmm. his last his last few years there he was having back stuff and shoulder stuff and right up until that last season he was still very effective as a starter right and then he was kind of breaking down and still not terrible
1: he did make a few he did make a just five bullpen appearances that year now his stuff was actually worse out of the bullpen so i i can't imagine we can actually take that seriously but if you think about a guy who's 610 fastball slider you don't forget how to throw it let's give him a year to rest up get healthy do whatever and then he adapts to a bullpen role that would take him some time but i would love to see the uh the perceived velocity on a randy johnson Mm -hmm. fastball it's one of the things we've missed out on now granted maybe he actually didn't get great extension, but that's hard to believe. I, I think he would have made it at least until 50. I don't think mm-hmm. he'd still be pitching now. I mean, we're talking like eight years after the end of his major league career. I don't think that a Lugie can survive forever. I also yeah. don't know if there would be room for like an old, terrible Mike Myers or Jesse Roscoe in the majors now. I think. Teams are kind of more focused on pitchers who can pitch to both sides, but on the other hand, I think the Mariners gave Marcus Zibcinski a multi-year contract, and he's bad, so there's still room. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. Randy could at least he would go out his last year. I think he would get a minor league contract, spring training
0: invite. Then he wouldn't end up with a job, but I think he'd have a few years where he would do that, and he would get a job. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, the shoulder could have continued to become decrepit and maybe he just wouldn't have been able to throw any innings at all in any role. I don't know. So it's possible that he just would have been out regardless. But I would think that just based on how successful he had been a year or two earlier, yeah, if you had him face lefties only and had him not work much and had him take some time off to get as healthy as he possibly could at that age before he started again, yeah, I like to think that he he could have made it to 50 or pretty close I'll note in his
1: last year, Randy Johnson as a starter His last year against lefties, he faced 89 of them And he struck out 23, he walked 5 So that means he had a strike He struck out a quarter of the lefties he faced Barely walked any Interesting, got some grand balls So still good against lefties Even when he was old and worse and
0: hurt So mm-hmm. that speaks well to the fact that he could have lasted a few more years for sure Yeah Alright, question from Ethan When do you think other professional leagues will install StatCast in all of their stadiums? Do you think this will eventually make it easier to predict a player's adjustment to the majors? So we can answer the second part of the question in a second. I found out some things about the first part of the question. So Major League teams have had... Trackman in their minor league parks for a while now. I was talking to one person with a team and he was saying that at this point, Trackman is basically everywhere. 95% of full season minor league stadiums have it. Last year, about half of the short season stadiums have it and probably more this year. Some teams even have it in the Dominican places like that. So that part is easy and everyone has it. And that gives you all the pitch information, spin and velocity and movement, all the stuff that we have in the big leagues. So that's widespread. But StatCast is not in the minors yet. And it seems like the situation is kind of complicated. If people remember, there was a system called Field FX that was going to be the future of baseball analysis. And this was a system made by Sportvision, the company that created pitch FX and hit FX. and this was going to be basically the same thing as statcast, at least in purpose, but designed by Sportvision. And the difference was that it was entirely camera and computer-based, like PitchFX is, as opposed to StatCast and TrackMan, which incorporate radar readings also. And so it took longer than expected to develop field effects, from what I understand, and it was like a several-year process, and there were delays and flaws with the accuracy because... There was no radar, and maybe if they had embraced the radar earlier, they could have gotten it to market sooner, but they didn't. And so, MLB, from what I understand, basically backed out of the deal that they had with Sport Vision for Field FX because StatCast was around and it was a, a better alternative that was ready. And from what I was told, right around the time they made that decision, FX kind of had a bunch of its kinks ironed out, so suddenly it made a big leap in progress and was <laughs> a pretty good system, but it was too late. Anyway, as part of this backing out of that deal, Major League Baseball Advanced Media agreed that they would not try to push StatCast into the minor leagues. So they sort of ceded the minors to Field FX, and so there are some teams that have Field FX in the minor leagues now. And there is an agreement of some kind. It's not in perpetuity. It's some sort of short-term agreement that says basically that StatCast can't compete with field effects in the minors, except for certain teams or conditions that I wasn't able to to find out about. So that's the state of things now. Everyone has TrackMan. Some teams might have field effects, and I'm sure they'd all want StatCast, but they are prevented from getting it for now. But at some point, they will be able to get it, so that's had, where things stand. I had learned from your Ringer baseball podcast
1: with Glenn Perkins that he mentioned that the Twins had uh, had track yes. ran all the way, all the way down. And I guess I'm a little unclear On what the difference is between TrackMan and StatCast, because StatCast Is built upon TrackMan radar yeah. And cameras, but I guess there's
0: Further right. interpretation necessary Yeah, this might be wonkier than Some people care about, <laughs> but StatCast Is like a fusion of two different Systems and companies, so There's TrackMan and then there's Chiron Higo, which is the mm. other Company, and that's like The other part of the system, so both Of the Field FX and StatCast Cast have like different camera placements And different number of cameras and camera Height and all of that but the thing That sets StatCast apart is The radar and that's the the Trackman component and then the Chiron Higo is I think the camera component So it's a, a fusion of two Companies and systems and that's what Enables Statcast to record the player positioning and the flight of the ball all the way through the air, whereas TrackMan doesn't get all of the same stuff if okay. you only use it in isolation.
1: So you'd be losing, you'd be missing a lot of the defensive stuff in the minors, yes. but you're still getting all the pitch stuff. And you're still getting base all running
0: that. and yeah, yeah, right.
1: But that's the stuff that we know the least about how to use. Right now, Anyway, at least in the, the public spheres, obviously the teams sure. have the stuff that they can do, but you're still getting all the pitch information. You're still getting all the hitter information. And of course, what we've seen the most use with is exit velocities and, and launch angles and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess when we talk about the differences between public knowledge and uh, private knowledge in at the major league level, we have, I don't know, like 98% of what the big league teams do. But the real difference might be down in the minors because we get nothing. All, all we get are the regular statistics Mm -hmm. and sometimes at least in the upper levels we get like swing rates and contact rates and stuff but we don't have any sort of meaningful like pitch effects or i guess now it's track man data for for minor leaguers unless they show up in like the futures game or they pitch in in spring training so we have we have nothing on that which is an analytical void i guess for us from the outside in theory that should make teams better at evaluating players for all the reasons that we have seen with major league players and trying to predict who needs to do what and who can make breakouts so it will be interesting i guess to take a look at when we have more information whether bust rates start going down or whether mm-hmm. player development gets better now that teams have all of this information but that will be uh, a project i would be delighted to leave to somebody else <laughs> to do
0: yeah there's always that question about like your first trip around the league, like before the league gets to adjust to you. I don't know that I've seen really great research on that. I think maybe Russell Carlton might have done something on that at some point, or maybe not. I don't know that that is true for for all rookies or even most rookies, but in theory if that is a thing or has historically been a thing, it won't continue to be a thing, at least to a certain extent, because you'll have the same detailed scatting reports on a player who just got Called up today that you do on someone else because you'll have all of his track man data from the minor leagues Of course that's assuming that the pitchers or hitters who face him Read the scouting reports and pay attention to the (laughs) scouting reports and a lot of players I think still go on Their own personal scouting reports of what they've seen and how many times they've faced the guy So they might not be paying attention to those things
1: Related to just real quick players and uh, their first times around I like to check in them. I I haven't seen great research on this either. I would assume if anyone has researched it, it would be Russell Carlton, who does the hard stuff I never want to touch. So I've always wondered, players first time around, how do they get treated? And in the major leagues, we can look at Bryce Harper, who debuted at 19, versus Mike Trout, who debuted at 19 as well. So just looking at fastball rate, pretty basic. Harper, as uh, his first year, he saw 46% fastballs. That's quite low. Mike Trout, Saw 58% fastball. So he was treated very differently when he was 19. And Bryce Harper, when he was a rookie, he saw uh, 42% of pitches in the strike zone. And Mike Trout saw 52% of pitches in the strike zone. So Mike Trout was pitched a lot more aggressively when he was uh, when he was young. Mm-hmm. The next year when Trout became the Trout that we all know and still somehow underappreciate, he actually saw far more fastballs. He saw 65% percent fastballs and he saw uh the same 51 percent of pitches in the strike zone and then he was like a what 10 win player (laughs) that was almost an 11 win player so the next year pitchers are like nope and so they stopped throwing so many fastballs and they moved out of the zone promptly uh the (laughs) problem with that of course being that Mike Trout hits everything and doesn't swing at balls so pitchers have still tried to find their way around Mike Trout which hot tip there isn't one but Bryce Harper has continued to see not very many pitches in the zone, although his fastball rate, interestingly, has gotten higher every single year, such that, let's see, let's see, off the top of my head, well, this isn't off the top of my head, so last year, Trout saw 58% fastballs, and Harper saw 56 the the gaps between them are narrowing, they appear to have gotten smaller basically every year, so... Mm-hmm. Pretty soon, maybe this year, Harper will see more fastballs than
0: Mike Trout. Yeah, so it took pitchers surprisingly long to adjust to the fact that Mike Trout is a baseball god, right? I mean, (laughs) Well, I mean, how do you adjust? What do you do? Uh, (laughs) I don't know what you do, but presumably they would have at least tried to throw him fewer fastballs as one tactic, and it took them a while to do that. So I don't know how quickly the scouting reports would get around, but... One day, obviously, StatCast will be everywhere. It'll be super cheap and routine and perfect, and it'll just be a matter of course. You have StatCast in your minor league park, and... Colleges will have StatCast, and we'll have Statcast for people from when they're in little league or going to showcases or that sort of thing and you just get it for Christmas. Yeah, I mean eventually <laughs> it'll happen. All I technology mean how many of us? starts out as something fancy and expensive and then it's something cheap that fits into our pocket. So I'm sure StackCast will get there too. I guess you would have had the chance when you were in Sonoma to maybe like
1: throw and test yourself on pitch effects. Yeah, just to, just to see, because it would be fun, yeah. right? If uh-huh. you, if you know the system's calibrated, you would like to see what your own pitches do. I don't know if you pitch or throw very much, but I think it would be a it would be a great time. I would love to have the opportunity to pitch just to look at my own data.
0: Yeah, I think Sam and I did that just to make sure it was registering pitches. Neither of us is like a practiced pitcher or particularly good at pitching but we threw baseballs and they were tracked which was cool (laughs) so all right stat segment sure so
1: i don't well whatever we don't need to go over the fact that we don't have a name for it so uh for no reason uh but desperation last week i started thinking about not just stolen bases, but high leverage stolen bases. I think this came out of the fact that I continued to be surprised that the Baltimore Orioles stole just 19 bases all season, and they also hit three triples all season. So for those of you who are familiar with Bill James's speed score, the Orioles rated as, I think, uh, I didn't make a note of this, but I think the second slowest team of all time by uh, <laughs> by that measure. But this isn't about the Orioles. This is about high leverage stolen bases. So for anyone who's unfamiliar, high leverage refers to basically the most important situations in a baseball game. It's when there is the most to gain or to lose by win probability, et cetera, et cetera. So last year, Jonathan VR led the majors with 62 stolen bases. Six of those came in high leverage situations. I don't know if that seems good or bad. It's basically what you'd expect Billy Hamilton 58 stolen bases six in high leverage spots for a low example Odubel Herrera or Mookie Betts they stole about 25 26 bases only one in high leverage situations Hernan Perez 34 seals one in a high leverage spot but what got my attention was the other side of things where two players last year two players in all of baseball had double digit Stolen bases in high leverage spots Can you guess those two players? I was going to guess it was like Paul Goldschmidt <laughs> just, uh, No he had, he did have five sneaky like that He did have five steals in high leverage situations But I think the Diamondbacks maybe only had five high leverage situations <laughs> <laughs> So two yeah. players hmm. I'll, I'll give you a hint for one uh, He doesn't hit ever <laughs> um, Eduardo Nunez? Uh, no, he does. Oh, when I, when I say when I say he doesn't hit ever, I mean he doesn't even get the chance. Oh, he doesn't get the chance.
0: Lenny Harris? Uh, last last year. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't hit ever? Oh, uh, oh, Terrence Gore. Right. Okay. So yeah. Terrence <laughs>
1: Gore last year he stole eleven bases, uh, and ten of them came in high leverage spots with the Royals. So that was second best in the majors. Terrence Gore. Uh, He batted zero times in high leverage spots, but he scored five times because he stole 10 bases and he got caught two times. But Rajai Davis, uh, he Mm -hmm. had 14, 14 high leverage steals and he was caught not once. So Rajai Davis led the majors with 14 high leverage steals. No one else had more than 10. That uh, made me a little curious about Rajai Davis and other players to do stuff like this. So at Fangraphs, we have these splits going back to 2002. So that covers a decent 15 years of Major League Baseball. And over that span, there are 19 player seasons who have stolen double digit bases uh, in high leverage spots. So Terrence Gore is there, of course, with his 10 steals and 12 attempts. So 15 years, 19 Players, player seasons who have stolen double digits. No one has stolen more than 14. So there are four cases of players stealing 14 high leverage bags. We have Billy Hamilton, who two years ago went 14 out of 17. We have Jose Reyes, who 11 years ago went 14 out of 17. But Rajai Davis shows up again. So Rajai Davis last year went 14 out of 14 in high leverage spots. In 2013, Rajai Davis went 14 out of 14 in high leverage spots and five years ago in 2012 Rajay Davis went 13 out of 13 in hmm. high leverage spots so of the players who have stolen double digit important bases and not been caught we have uh, just reading up the list we have Tony Campana not a surprise Darren Mastroianni who that's the first time I've said his name out loud and probably <laughs> will be the last we have Jimmy Rollins from five years ago and then topping the list we have Rajai Davis Rajay Davis and <laughs> Rajai Davis. So I don't know what this means about Rajai Davis for his career, because uh, if I look over his entire career, he hasn't been an exceptional base stealer by rate or in these spots. But at least over the past five years, I guess, Davis is looking at 48 successful high leverage stolen bases, almost 10 a year. And he's been caught just four times. And actually, that overlooks that in 2011, he went six out of six. The year before that, he was 5 out of 6, so Rajai Davis, for all of his, I guess, drawbacks, he does seem to be not only an incredible base runner overall, but also an incredible situational base runner, which is something that seems like he would have a decent amount of value, at least for a playoff team, so not the team that he plays for now, <laughs> but he is 36 years old, seems like he could be an easy midseason trade candidate. So Rajay Davis, even at the age of, he's what, he's 36 years old now. And still, he's up to 365 career stolen bases, which is a lot. He has shown no sign of slowing down, or maybe if he has shown signs of slowing down, he's shown no signs of getting stupid on the bases. He's been a tremendous base stealer. The last, well, for his career, he's added more than three wins of value. Just by running, uh, stealing bases alone, throw in the fact that he doesn't hit into double plays, and he runs the bases well when he's not stealing. Fantastic base runner, and so Raja Davis would be at least one example of a player who is his entire game is based around speed, but he has not had uh, one of those early declines. I don't know when people talk about player types and how they decline. I'm not really sure where the consensus is. I think a player like Raja Davis is said to either have a graceful decline because he's so athletic or he'll decline really fast because his game is based around his speed. And what it seems to me is that people mean we don't know what's going to happen to a player like Raja Davis Mm because we've You've heard both arguments, right? And they're yes. in direct contrast with one another. <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing the same about Sean Figgins, which, whoops, that was a mistake. But <laughs> I remember when the Marin assigned him, he seemed like he's a great runner, contact guy, great defender. He should age gracefully. And what actually happened was that he's not literally dead, but he performed <laughs> as if he were a dead baseball player who was in the lineup every day. So I think people, one of the early sabermetric ideas that people got maybe a little too comfortable with was the idea of how players decline and it turns out no we really don't know how they decline certainly not by player type and uh, I think it was Russell who not too long ago wrote an essay about what was it n equals one Mm -hmm. I think was the name of his his article that every player is different Uh, I'm gonna write something about Felix Hernandez soon for Fangraphs because he, uh, he had an off-season workout regimen uh, for, let's say, maybe the first time in his career. <laughs> I don't want to cast aspersions on Felix Fernandez, but yeah, he's never had to work that hard before. But his, uh, his trainer said that the idea of working so much on his lower body is that he wants to get the fastball back up to uh, 93, 94 miles per hour,
0: mm, which be nice. would be
1: interesting. Uh, He hasn't averaged 93 or above since 2011. Felix Hernandez now is coming up on 31 years old. It would be easy to be dismissive and say, well, Felix, that's too bad, but it looks like you were declining. This is just how you are going to decline, and pitchers don't get better when they are your age. But we can't really know that, because just because the population gets worse doesn't mean that Felix is guaranteed to do that. We've seen... Justin Verlander has gone from averaging 92 miles per hour a couple years ago to 93 and a half last year. So there are clear signs of players who can bounce back and Verlander is even older than Felix is. So there's reason for hope. And I think when we are talking about players declining or not declining, we just don't know. And I would imagine that aging curves
0: are changing by the year at this point Mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah, good point. All right. Interesting. Now I know something about Rashid Davis that I didn't know before. I appreciate him more than I did before. All right. Question from two people, Ben and Eric, who asked virtually the same question. In the Cubs preview episode, Sahadev alluded to the conventional wisdom that defense is slump-proof. I'm just wondering to what degree we have evidence for this. It seems like StatCast might be helpful in trying to figure out if players go through defensive slumps. What do we know about this? And I think that's true. This is another case where StatCast can help but hasn't helped yet. So I'm just going to speculate. I think probably the things that are more prone to slumps, well, the less something is out of a hitter's control or out of a player's control, the more prone it is to what we view as slumps, I would think. The more factors are in play, like a hitter's slump might just be because he is mechanically screwed up and that's just something that is a problem with him only but it could also be that he's been facing really good pitchers lately who've been making really good pitches or he's been facing really good defensive teams or he's had some bad batted ball luck and you know you can strip some of that out with Statcast too but a lot of what might have looked like a slump might have just been Things bunching up in ways that were hard to quantify before. And if you look at something like Russell Carlton does his research about things stabilizing or becoming reliable. And basically the the lesson is just that if it's something that is very directly under a player's control, like if it's swing rate or something, well, a player can always decide whether to swing or not. That is just a decision that he can make when he's standing at the plate. And if he's wired a certain way to swing a lot or not swing a lot, he's probably just going to do his usual amount of swinging in any small sample. And so defense, I think, would theoretically fall somewhere in the middle there in that you must slump in that sometimes you have a nagging injury or you're tired or you're sick or whatever. And you're not going to get as good a jump. You're not going to be as fast that day. But For the most part, players are roughly in the same sort of shape throughout a season, I would think, and they don't get hugely slower over the course of a single season. So I wouldn't expect the raw skills to vary that much, and the opportunities vary a lot, and that's something that StatCast has already shown, that it's really a pretty small number of plays in a season that differentiates a good fielder from a bad fielder, and The opportunities to distinguish yourself in that way can vary from season to season. And you just might not get challenged that much in a single season or you might get challenged a lot in a single season. And so you might appear to slump just because you had fewer balls in a zone that would make you look good when you caught them, that kind of thing. And so something like DRS or UZR would Penalize you perhaps for that or you'd have fewer opportunities to stand out from the pack So I think there's probably something to that and there's probably something to the fact that not everyone is Equally well positioned to get good jumps and run really fast every single day throughout a season That stuff will fluctuate just like anything will fluctuate But I would think it would be more stable than hitting for example, where there are just all of these variables that are only partially or not at all in the player's control.
1: Yeah, I I basically agree, so I'm going to say what you said with different words. I think that it comes down to First of all, you have to dis- uh, define what a slump is, whether it's a hitter actually underperforming or are you slumping if you hit five straight balls right at the third baseman because you went over? I don't know. That would classically be a slump, but I think that doesn't reflect the hitter slumping. So if you have a hitter who's slumping because he's, like you said, kind of sick, well, that's going to affect the way that you defend. If he's slumping because his attention is elsewhere, maybe he has some family crisis or he just is having a professional crisis and he Mm -hmm. is thinking about other things he could be doing with his life. Well, then you're also going to be of a wayward mind in the outfield or the infield. So you would be getting worse jumps or whatnot if you are slumping because you are hurt. Well, that's going to affect you in in the field as well. But I think that there's not really such a thing on any complicated level is like defensive mechanics. You know, you're basically running and you're catching and you're throwing. So Mm -hmm. of course there are some mechanics, but it's nothing like hitting. It's nothing so intricate as hitting mechanics. So I think you don't lose. Sometimes hitters will kind of lose their swings. And I don't think you're going to see that in the field. Like you said, there's a lot of It's going to come down to opportunities or positioning as well. So you might just end up with like a few too many balls that are just out of your reach but they look like they're catchable so to some people it might seem like you're slumping or to UZR it might seem like you're you're slumping i think one area where you could see uh, a meaningful statistical slump even with no change in performance is like arm statistics come down to very few plays during a season and if you are a if you're say Juan Lagares and you build up a tremendous arm rating because you threw a bunch of runners out at home well, I don't know how often you've watched plays at home, but they're they're flips of the coin almost every single time. And obviously, the accuracy and strength of a throw are in large part up to an outfielder, but they are so fast and they happen so quickly. And I think for a throw to be six inches offline from 200 feet away, it says nothing different about the outfielder, but such a small difference or even just an umpire call difference can make a difference between a runner being out at third or home and being safe at third or home. And so it comes down to these bang-bang plays that uh, I think it would be really easy to see an outfielder having a great assist season one year, and then the next year he could have almost the same exact throws, but because maybe the runners are better, or the throws are very, very slightly worse, then your arm rating would look a lot worse, and it wouldn't really reflect anything about your skill. So Mm -hmm. granted, that would be a statistical slump and not a performance slump, but it's something I think about whenever I look at crazy arm ratings, because... Usually they involve base runners doing things they shouldn't or throws essentially getting lucky, for lack of a better
0: word. Right. All right. Quick one from Joe. As a Cubs fan, I had a few years of heavy prospect watching recently just hoping what the Cubs were doing would turn out well. It did. Yay. My question is about Kyle Hendricks. He was never a top prospect, but I fell in love with him as a pitcher when he was still in the minors. I totally bought into the Maddox comps and was a believer in him when he had a good season as a rookie. When a lot of people were expecting regression in 2016, I did not do much analytical research to confirm my love. I just had a feeling. I guess I like the underdog. I do feel like a Kyle Hendricks hipster, though. This is my question. Is it okay for me to feel smug about being one of the early ones on the Hendricks train, Or did I just get lucky? How much am I allowed to gloat about this? My gut says I probably just got lucky, but I want to feel validated.
1: Well, so the answer is, yeah, you got lucky, but you can still be smug as long as you stop now. Uh, (laughs) Don't I wouldn't try to like go identify the next Kyle Hendricks because Kyle Hendricks is to a certain extent kind of a baseball miracle. And he didn't even necessarily figure out quite what he was until this last season when he picked up a new trick and he got better against lefties. But if you want to speak generally, I think you can learn from Hendricks to grant greater respect to strike throwing minor leaguers who might not have the classic stuff that gets you attention. So you can be smug about your going against the prospect lists and valuing something else. But I certainly would not try to make a habit of trying to find more of these guys because usually they aren't going to run ERAs in the twos in the major leagues when they throw 88 Miles per hour on a good day Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah I think you know How much credit you deserve If you (laughs) watched Him and evaluated him and came To some counterintuitive Conclusion that no one else was coming to And you saw what they didn't see Then sure you deserve Lots of credit if you Just liked him for reasons that You couldn't qualify and you couldn't even Describe and you didn't even know why you liked him Well maybe you were picking up on Something subconsciously and You had some insight, some sort of blink-level insight that was informing your opinion of the player. But, I mean, have you fallen in love with lots of other players who turned out to be bad? Is it the same process that you were using to evaluate those players that you were using to evaluate Hendrix? If so, yeah, you probably got lucky, but that's okay. I think you can still take some pride in it as long as you don't gloat too loudly and too publicly.
1: Do you remember John Stevens? Does that name mean anything to you? So John Stevens was a guy he pitched. I remember he only came to my interest or attention because of those old volumes of baseball prospectus that got me into this stuff in the first place. And John Stevens was a righty. He, uh, He was a pitcher for the Orioles when the Orioles were terrible. So he was interesting. He pitched parts of just one year in 2002 in the majors. He ran an ERA that was literally over six but he also uh, had 56 strikeouts as a starter in 65 innings, which at that point was pretty good. And if I can just get rid of some numbers here in the minors, his uh, his numbers were really interesting. He had basically a, a strikeout an inning as a starting pitcher in the Orioles system. He barely walked anybody. He didn't give up many home runs. He was one of those old baseball prospectus statistical dolls. The problem was that Okay, so I'm going to guess Fangraphs didn't measure this right, because in 2002, the measurements were off. I don't think his average fastball was actually 73 miles per hour, (laughs) but it wasn't that much better. He threw what I recall being kind of like a R.A. Dickey fastball, or maybe like a late career Jared Weaver fastball. He threw in the low, maybe mid-80s. That's what I recall. I wish I could confirm that, but I can't believe these numbers are accurate, or if they are, holy crap, no wonder (laughs) he was terrible, but... He was he was a no stuff pitcher who had I think like a really good curveball and changeup the stuff that of course you'd need to succeed in the minors without any kind of fastball. I remember being really excited this is back like when Jack Cust was a, was a big prospect and I thought these two guys are going to like defy the system. Cust is going to be a great major leaguer and Stevens is going to be a great major leaguer and then Stevens got a little bit obliterated and Cust did steroids and he couldn't do anything but flip his bat when he walked uh, so I remember being quite disappointed and my history teacher was an Orioles fan and I got his hopes up and then they were dashed a little bit but Stevens I wish I think he wound up with shoulder problems that kind of cost him the rest of his career according to baseball reference he washed out when he was 26 which is a, a bummer but in the minors he had basically a strike at an inning two walks per nine didn't give up home runs really interesting had no stuff and I wish that he were around today i guess i don't know what a recent comparison would be but one guy who kind of comes to mind is do you remember instead jorge campillo yeah Mm -hmm. okay so campillo he didn't even throw 200 major league innings but assuming fangraphs has these numbers correctly his fastball averaged 85.6 for his career which is not good but he was a changeup guy. His changeup was 74.6 and over his limited amount of time he w- had a better than average FIP, xFIP, and uh, his ERA was right on the average. So he had one year of success before he, uh, I think he also had shoulder problems, but he was fun because he didn't throw hard when everybody else was and he still succeeded with the Braves and I even forgot what the original question. Kyle Hendricks. Kyle <laughs> Hendricks was the original question. Yeah. yeah, there are these guys do float around. They do mm-hmm. exist. It's fun to look for them and kind of scout the stat line, so to speak. But they are few and far
0: between, and I think you you definitely have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's close by searching our emails for Adam Lind. Could you search for <laughs> Adam Lind? I don't. You might send or receive more Adam Lind related emails than I do, but if you're like me, it will be the most recent. Message in your inbox when you search for Adam Lind. It's a question from a listener named Eric Subject line odd Adam Lind Visual. He links us to a tweet. This is a tweet from September. So he's been thinking about this question for about five months now, and <laughs> he has finally come to us for an answer. This is footage, <laughs> <laughs> nine seconds of footage of Adam Lind at the plate. In a mid-September game, and the question that Eric asks is, did he fart? <laughs> the evidence that he did, and I will link to this tweet at Fangrass blog post in the Facebook group so that you can play along. The evidence that he did is that there is some expulsion of some sort. I need to mute my mic. <laughs> There's something. How is this only two retweets? <laughs> two retweets and three likes, but maybe soon to have many more. So, right after the pitch <laughs> crosses the plate, just as it's crossing the plate, really, there is something that okay. comes from the vicinity okay. of Adam Lynn's behind. It might be behind Adam Lynn's behind. It's hard to tell <laughs> because of the perspective. But there's something visible and gaseous that seems to emanate from that area. Right. Okay.
1: I okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm I'm doing this frame by frame. I there's nothing. It's it's before the ball gets the mitt. Okay. There's nothing yeah. else. There's no other sort of movement or dust in the scene. Nothing right. coming from anywhere. There's a, like a glare. This is clearly recorded from a television, but yes. it doesn't seem like it's an artifact of the camera work. It definitely looks like it's like a chalk fart. I think <laughs> if Is that you, a thing? <laughs> Well, no, those are two words I've never put together, but it's kind of like, you know, LeBron's pregame. Now, if you have an ordinary fart, it's it's invisible, right? I remember sure. there, there was one time, you can be represented indirectly, there was one time I was in line at at what was then Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego, and I was standing in a concession line behind an older man with (laughs) loose-fitting long pants, and he, I didn't see his fart, but I saw the ripples of the fart in his pants, and I I could tell, like, I know what you you did, but you don't see something like this, so it's possible he had a very
0: strong fart, and there was, like, chalk on his pants, although that would be a weird place for chalk. I know, I was thinking, I, I did some research, he played first base that day, he had not Been on base as a hitter. He had struck out in his first at bat. This was his second at bat of the game. So it wasn't as if he had slid on the bases unless he had made some diving defensive play or something, which it's Adam Lynn. So I'm not sure how likely that is. And it would have to be something that was on his pants. And I don't know why you would have chalk on there necessarily. It's a strange place to have chalk. So. I don't know, and the the force that would be sufficient to, to propel that amount of chalk in such a visible way would have to be pretty substantial. right. so I'm, I'm thinking
1: in terms of like fumaroles. If you look at certain volcanoes, they don't a lot of <laughs> active volcanoes do emit gas. It's not always visible, but sometimes it is visible. You can see an active fumarole with the naked eye, and a lot of times that will be water vapor, so it's possible. <laughs> it's possible that there's some sort of like therapeutic steam insertion that maybe takes place between innings like the the expression don't blow smoke up my ass that has to come from somewhere i don't know <laughs> who would want smoke blown up their ass but it would then have to come back out yeah uh, i think so you could have like a a water vapor fart, which seems like almost impossible. It could also the one that's uh, commonly seen is sulfur dioxide. You can see that with the naked eye, but that seems like it would be an odd mixture of chemicals to be in Adam Lind's body. But I don't know. I don't know a lot about Adam Lind, but I am. We now have visible evidence of what was a fleeting, but seemingly legitimate, active fumarole emitting from Adam Lind's rear and. It's under the radar because, again, two retweets, three likes. This, I, I want to retweet it, but maybe the problem is that Major League Baseball doesn't like us using videos anymore on our Twitter, videos yeah. or gifs. So, I don't know. Okay, li- listen. Major League Baseball and uh, MLB.com, I'm not actively retweeting this. I am only... Talking about it I am encouraging Other people to view The tweet they will not be even linked. a manual Retweet It's like a verbal Retweet Verbal This is a verbal Retweet I think <laughs> Basically coming From both of us Yes It will be linked In the Effectively Wild Yes uh, Facebook group This is This is the most Important footage That I missed From 2016
0: <laughs> Whatever it is Happens at A pivotal Decisive Climactic Moment This pitch Is about to be Decided <laughs> And you can imagine That there might be Some kind of clinch taking place at that precise moment and perhaps there was something expelled i like that he tweeted at root sports northwest <laughs> to, to ask if adam lind farted smoke as if they would confirm or refute and uh that you can see visible in the top of the the chiron in the top of the image that yeah cherry depoto was in the booth for this inning <laughs> so i i regret not asking him about so this. what?
1: This is in September. So yes. I should mention the the three Twitter accounts that are shown here. There are no replies <laughs> to this tweet. Uh, it was retweeted or liked by someone with twenty seven followers, someone with four, and a someone with seven. And yeah. the person who tweeted this has twenty nine followers. So this <laughs> basically doesn't exist as far as twitter is concerned looking at things so this is the first pitch of an at-bat it looks like it's tony sip is that right yeah I think on the so. mound lefty for the astros so first pitch maybe it's a maybe it's a fear fart this is <laughs> in the middle of september of what was a bad year for adam lind so maybe he was a little upset right he could feel his it's career like, yeah, kind of it's, slipping
0: away it's cutting across his body the pitch it may have looked like it was heading for him right he took the pitch which is an important detail he uh <laughs>
1: He thought about swinging, and then as he checked his swing is when he apparently farted. So it's possible that he caught himself. My girlfriend sometimes gets surprised by hiccups. Like, she doesn't know they're coming, and then it surprises both of us when yeah. they happen. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he couldn't tell. He usually have an inkling, right? But maybe he couldn't tell if this was going to happen, and then he he held up. Because, I mean, let's face it. The breaking ball was pretty hittable. Yeah. It's like thigh high <laughs> over the middle of the plate first pitch. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe this even cost Adam Lind like a double or a home run. <laughs> and under the close observation of
0: Jerry DePoto, who's discussing this plate appearance in the booth. Bino is the new inefficiency. <laughs> Sadly, Adam Lind is not on Twitter. So we can't ask him directly that way. Is, is there any sort of response from anyone else? <laughs> no, Catcher doesn't flinch. Just a beautiful framing job by Jason Castro. Yeah, just because it... Emitted chalk doesn't necessarily mean it made a sound, I suppose. That's
1: that's true. Although, I mean, I don't want to... (laughs) Look, I think we can probably conclude Adam Lind is not a quiet farter. (laughs) He doesn't have the build
0: of one. Maybe I'm stereotyping. Uh, All right. This is important, so I'm glad we talked about it. We report. You all decide. Let us know what you think. And September I suppose <laughs> on that <What> note, else <laughs> hold on, hold on. Oh, you've got more? Sup- no, I don't
1: know. I don't know. We're doing this live. <laughs> September 19th, what did Adam Lind do in that game?
0: Yeah, he had he had struck out once. He had yep. played first. I don't know if he had made a, a play. Oh, this
1: wasn't September 19th. Oh, this must it?
0: have been September 18th, even though the tweet Ooh. was sent on
1: the 19th. Because the 18th, he faced the Astros. Ah, So he okay. had struck out his first two at bats against Doug right. Fister, which last year that's a little bit humiliating. <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah, so Lind early on in the uh, the first inning, Lind struck out against Doug Fister five pitches. In the third inning, struck out four pitches. Doug Fister fifth inning. Oh, okay. What does he do against Tony Sip? He singles. What what does he single on? A line drive? The very next pitch. (laughs) Somebody was feeling relieved by the circumstances. (laughs) It's possible he had some sort of gastrointestinal distress through the first four and a half innings of this game. Finally relieved on live television. Very next pitch. It's a line drive single up the middle. What does Adam Lind do for the rest of the season? From that point on, Adam Lind... If I can just get this, no, that's not This is less dramatic than I wanted it to be But Adam Lind over the rest of the year Including that at bat He goes 13 For 42, which works out To a 310 batting average Wow, Yeah. so So this had been Building up for some time perhaps Yeah, I wonder if Adam Lind (laughs) Had some serious problems That kind of (laughs) held him back And uh, yeah, very next pitch
0: Maybe not a coincidence All right. Well, this is one of the few questions that even StatCast can answer. I don't think (laughs) it's (laughs) sensitive enough (laughs) to pick up on this, but maybe someday we look forward to your responses and opinions and we will end there. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have done so already, Jem Oregon, Nathan Wamser, Dan Cardy, Sean Newkirk, and Sander Glick. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at Facebook.com/slash groups slash effectively wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. And you can reach me and Jeff via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will be back on Friday with the preview episode for the Cleveland Indians and Chicago White Sox. So we will talk to you then. But it